It's good to see you today. Glad to be with you, opening God's Word. If you would, open up to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, that'll be on page 59 in the Pew Bibles. And if you are in elementary school, or if you are one of my VBS volunteers, you're going to recognize this text. That's because this summer, we started here at the Fountainhead, in Exodus chapter 17, and we traced a theme all the way through God's Word. And that's this. God gives us this word picture over and over and over again, that his presence and his provision comes to us like a river of living water. So we started in Exodus chapter 17, we went to Jeremiah chapter 2, then we went to John chapter 7, and in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, that we are a thirsty people, and our only hope is to come to Jesus to drink deeply. But it all starts in Exodus chapter 17. And VBS, Vacation Bible School, looking forward to it coming up soon. It was a great time of sharing the gospel with kids from these texts. But what I was not expecting was how deeply this challenged and encouraged me. And so as I prepared these little devotionals, 10-minute devotionals for kids, I just started journaling and notes and notes and notes. And I said, if there's one thing that I want to share with the people of Redeemer, if I have the opportunity to preach, it's going to be this. So I hope to share it all with you today. Before we turn and read our text, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are and for coming so near to us through Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. These people did not gather to hear from me, they came to hear from you. And so Lord, speak powerfully through your word. As uh, we all come here as people who are hurt by sin or have sinned, we need this word as a balm to our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak mightily. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. And I encourage you to keep it open as we read, because it'll be helpful to be able to spot specific things on the page. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, because of the quarreling the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that is the question for our souls today. Is God with us or not? By Thanksgiving 2011, I'd lived in Jackson here for around seven years, and I love this place. It really has become home. And the food is great. It is fantastic. And I'm learning more and more that it is, but there's absolutely no replacement for Cajun and Creole cuisine. I grew up in South Louisiana, and so we've got great food here, but it's just not, it's not Louisiana. So uh, you can imagine how often I look forward to going home 
And this time, 2011, Kristen and I were getting ready to drive to my grandmother's house, which is in De Quincey, Louisiana. You've never heard of it. It's between East Texas and a true Acadiana, Cajun country, and it's a blend of both cultures, pretty, pretty perfectly meshed there. So we take off from Jackson, and we have to drive through the heart of Louisiana. And along the way, we started to get hangry at each other. If you're familiar with hanger, it's a physiological and emotional condition where you're so hungry you can't be civil with anyone. So Kristen and I are bickering at each other, we're fussing at each other, we're fighting, and we realize we've got to stop for food. And I think I was saying, come on, we can make it. And she was just like, no, we got to stop now. And we realized later, shortly thereafter, we found out that we were expecting our first child come that summer. So at least Kristen had a reason to be grumpy. I didn't. I was just being sinful. Um, so we stopped. We found the first fast food joint we could see, got burgers and fries, filled our hunger, and we're on our way. Well, sure enough, a couple hours later, we pull up to my grandmother's house, and I instantly regretted that decision because I had forgotten. As soon as I opened the door to the threshold of her house, she had this beautiful, like, it looked like a calico cat um, shag carpeting. As soon as I opened the door and stepped onto the carpet, I smelled gumbo, and you could smell it all the way out into the carport. It was a huge mistake. But in our impatience, we missed out on what was rightfully ours and what we were waiting for. If only I had waited until I was with my family, I could have enjoyed what was mine, right? But taking it into my own hands, I missed out on something good. This is the story of Exodus chapter 17. God's people are on the way to the promised land. They have been set free from slavery. And God is bringing them to his promised land. He's providing for them. And he has provided for them. But in their thirst, in their hunger, they cannot wait. They cannot wait, and they respond in rage and rebellion. If there's one thing that I want all of us to take away today, it's this. That you have good reason to wait on the Lord precisely because He is with you. Redeemer, wait on the Lord because He is with you. And this text gives us three ways that God is with us. First, God is with you in your rebellion. God is with you in your rebellion. Next, God is with you through his mediator. And finally, God is with you by way of his rock. In your rebellion, through his mediator, and by way of his rock. So first, in your rebellion, look with me at verses 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there's no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Like I said, they had just been set free from slavery in Egypt. God had broken the bonds and their chains and was leading them to the promised land. And God had shown them his provision, hadn't he? Just a few chapters before, God had given them manna from heaven when they were hungry. When they grew tired of the manna, God was still good to them again and gave them quail, birds to eat. And not only did he provide for them, but he, was also, he also gave them his presence. They were not alone in the wilderness. But by night, a column of fire, and by day, a column of smoke. And he was with them wherever they went. But over and over and over again, Israel chose the security of slavery over the uncertainty of faith. 
the security of slavery over the uncertainty of faith. In the manna episode, they're talking all about the food in Egypt. We had garlic, we had onions. Garlic and onions are great. But in face of slavery, in bondage, over and over again, they talked about Egypt as if a good it was a good place that they wanted to return to because they could not see what God was leading, to them, leading them to or trust them that he would take them there and provide for them every step of the way. But look with me at verse 3. It's, not like, we can, it's easy to pick on Israel and they're grumbling and complaining and write it off as silly or ridiculous. But look at verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? How many of us could with no problem start to begin to see our beloved children start to die of dehydration? How many of us could watch this happen? What this represents, their very lives were at stake. The lives of their beloved children and their very livelihoods, which is what their livestock were. And so this, this concern and this anxiety over their life and their children's lives, that's valid. But they responded to that legitimate anxiety, that legitimate concern with rage and rebellion. With rage and rebellion. And they turned away from God. And it says they quarreled and tested. They are adamantly against Moses, putting him on trial and testing the Lord. And we may think of it as the grumbling and complaining. It's mild. No, this is murderous. Look with me at verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is a rebellious rage that's going to end in murder. It's escalating and escalating and escalating. They are thirsty. They are scared for themselves and their children, and they're ready to kill Moses. And yet what does God do? He stays with them. He does not abandon them. Goodwill Hunting, is, this is a reference, not a recommendation. Goodwill Hunting is a movie about a very brilliant yet troubled young man by the name of Will. He's a, mathematic, a mathematical genius. And he ends up solving a complex uh, problem on the board while working as a janitor at a university. And his life is in trouble. And as part of a plea deal, he agrees and he has these caseworkers come and help him over and over and over again. And he will send them out of the office as soon as possible. He has a way of turning their words back on themselves. He fights and he wins. Until we meet Sean, played by Robin Williams. And there's one scene you may remember where Sean walks in and he puts a case file down on the desk. And Will looks at him and says, there's some pretty messed up stuff in there, isn't it? And he said, yeah. He said, you ever seen anything like that before? And he said, yes, I have. And he says, Will, all this in here, look, son, this is not your fault. Will had told him about the physical abuse that he had at the hand of his, of his father. He said his father would lay out three objects and make him pick which one. And he would choose the worst just to spite his father. And it breaks your heart to even think about that. And in the case file, there's proof of all of this. And so he points at it and says, all of this in here, this is not your fault. And Will tries to brush it off and he says, yeah, I know. But Sean doesn't give up. He moves closer to him and says, Will, this is not your fault. And he's confused and says, okay, why do you keep saying that? He moves closer again, coming around the desk and says, this is not your fault. This is not your fault, Will. And Will explodes. He pushes him back, just like he had pushed away everyone else in his life. And exploded in rage. And yet, he still persisted, moving closer and closer and closer to him, saying, this is not your fault. Until finally Will breaks down in his arms, weeping. 
finally getting the message through. Brothers and sisters at Redeemer, do you know that this is the kind of God who you serve? Who in your rage and rebellion moves closer to you and not further away? Who provides for you in the middle of your rebellion? As it says in Romans 5, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And here in the wilderness... When they are rebelling against God, he does not leave them or forsake them. He stays with them and he even moves closer. We have to pause and consider the implications of that this is the kind of God we serve in the middle of our rebellion. I want you to know some of you are rebelling against God. Some of you are rebelling against God. And God is not surprised. Did you know that God is big enough to handle your rebellion? He can handle it. He is not surprised by sin. But is that what we really want? In light of what we've seen him do, his provision and his presence, is that what we really want? He can handle our rage. He can handle these questions. He is not phased by it. But is that what we want as we look at our own hearts? My son, uh, he's been a difficult baby. He's two now. When he was just a little bit younger, he would fight and scream in my arms, kicking at me, swinging at me. And it's all because he's exhausted. And I know that he's exhausted. And so I'm holding there. I know what he needs. And he's fighting against it tooth and nail until eventually he's just exhausted and he just collapses. But I never left him. I held him until he finally fell asleep. This is the kind of God who serves, who we serve. I know that some of you have experienced hurt and heartbreak and longing and waiting that I can't begin to fathom. Your rebellion may come from a place of being hurt. You may be waiting and longing and fighting against God because of those things. But I also want you to know that I stand here as a man and my wife and I are people who have waited and longed for a very good thing for a very long time and we do not know when or if God is going to answer that prayer. And it breaks our hearts. But what I need you to know today is that God is with you in the midst of it when you don't think that He might not provide what it is that you're waiting for. Whatever you may be waiting for, it's His presence. I want you to know that the God who holds you is worth far more than anything that He can give you. Anything He can give you. And it breaks my heart to say that because I'm there. But it's true. And sometimes, some of you, when you hear the word rebellion, if you're anything like me, you, you automatically think of someone else. Some of you have children or family or friends who are rebelling against God or rebelling against you. I want you to remember that God is with them and God can handle it. And that He will draw them to repentance if that is His will. They can turn around and they will come back if He does it to them, if He sends His Spirit but let's fight that temptation to think about someone else and think about our own rebellion before God. Our own rebellion before God. Think, think about it in, this, in these terms. Um, the, prodigal of the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? How many rebels are there in the parable of the prodigal son? Conventional wisdom would think that there's one. The one who took his father's inheritance and squandered it, eating with pigs. But there are two rebels in the parable of the prodigal son. You see, we're all rebels. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. We talk about this a lot in the children and youth department at Redeemer. 
There's acting out in behaviors that are more obvious, and they're acting out in behaviors that are more subtle. But all of them are rebellion before God. All of them are rebellion before God. If the, the, the son who was dining with pigs rebelled against his father's law, the older brother rebelled against his father's love. If the prodigal son rebelled against his father's authority, the older brother rebelled against his father's grace. We're in the same boat. Our, rebel our rebellion must be atoned for. We must be forgiven for it because we're all there. Because we have a tendency to hide, minimize, or normalize our sin. But the Bible and our loving God who stays close to us does not allow us to do that. We can't idealize the younger brother and say, well, he, we, have to, we have to come to the end of ourselves running against God, rebelling against God if we're ever going to be saved. No, obedience of that older brother was what God had called him to. But the beauty of the story is that the younger brother finally repented of his rebellion, and we don't know what happened with that older brother. Some of you, your rebellion is not outward. But we all must repent and come back to the Father and be loved by Him. If we say that our sin is not rebellion, if we act like our sin is no big deal, what we are saying is that our God is not really that holy, and we're proving that we don't believe that He's really that good. But brothers and sisters, looking at Exodus chapter 17, He is good because He stays with us in the middle of our rebellion. He stays with you in your rebellion in order to lead you out of it. In order to lead you out of it. How does He do that? Do that? One of the ways He does that is through His mediator. So first, God is with you in your rebellion. Second, God is with you through His mediator. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. We know that Israel's rage and rebellion was just misdirected. It was at the tangible representative of God, Moses, instead of God Himself. Moses, over and over, he had stood before the people on their behalf before Pharaoh and cried out, let my people go. And in just a little while, he would stand on Mount Sinai and plead for the people for their lives. Moses is in this precarious position where he has a rebellious, raging people that he represents and a holy God, and he stands in the middle. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But isn't it sad that not only, did he, was, not only was he mistreated with the people of God, he was mistreated by the people of God. Moses is just a shadow of what this text is intending to show us. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we read that there is one mediator before God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus stands in the gap for us as our mediator, pleading with God on our behalf, in Hebrews 7 and 8, we read that he's a better mediator because he mediates a better covenant. It's a better relationship with God. We read that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. Not that the law is gone, not that it does not have a role in our lives, but just that Jesus is better and that the law actually leads us to Christ, to love him, to worship him in light of his love for us, that he is with us. And do you remember Barabbas standing next to this innocent mediator before God and man, and there's a rebellious 
crowd screaming for his death. And they choose Barabbas, a true rebel, a rebel against the Roman government, so that Jesus would die and take the full wrath of their rebellion. We need a mediator. Because if we're honest with ourselves while we're standing up here singing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is yes. We would have been there. In the song we're going to sing right after the sermon, we hear, I ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. In our rebellion, we are the, we are the mob. We're the crowd crying out for Jesus' death. In our rage, in our rebellion. But God stays with us through his mediator. Jesus stands on our behalf. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there because God tells Moses to do something. Not just receive the wrath and the rage from them, but take his staff and go. God is about to give his people an object lesson that they're never going to forget. Because God is with his people, with us, by way of his rock. Look with me at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. When we read about the rock in, in God's word, it's tempting for me. When I hear of a rock, I think of something that I can carry. If I think of a boulder, I think of something that's larger than me. But anytime you read rock in God's word, what's in view there is the mountain, an immovable, unshakable mountain, God's mountain. And so when we say, go to the rock, lead me to, when the psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, it makes more, much more sense that this is something that we cannot conquer. This is something bigger than us. And so he, go, he tells him to go to the rock, and this is Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. In just a few chapters, in chapter 33, Moses would be on Horeb, be on Sinai, and he would say, Lord, show me your glory. And do you remember what happened? He told Moses to hide, and his glory would pass by, and God protected Moses and covered him over while he walked by so that he wouldn't die seeing God's glory. Hiding in the cleft of the rock. And you remember what happened in 2 Kings, right? 1 Kings. When Elijah is crying out before Ahab and Jezebel, they've turned aside to Baal. They're worshiping all these false gods. There's no one worshiping the one true God alone anymore. And there are 400 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and there's Elijah, and they both build an altar. And Elijah prays, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know, may know that you alone are God and that you are turning their hearts back to you. And God answered his prayer, sent fire from heaven. But what happened? Did the people repent? They didn't even turn around from their sin. And in, in humiliation and sadness, Elijah ran. And where did he run? He ran to Horeb. And it was on Horeb that God sent the fire and God sent the earthquake and God sent the wind. But God wasn't in any of those things. The rock at Horeb absorbed all of the wrath of the fire, the earthquake, and the wind so that Elijah was kept safe. Do you see what's happening here when the Bible tells us about the rock? This is where we hide. This is where we are safe. God tells Moses to strike the rock and water will come out. Living water. And when the Bible talks about living water, it's going to show up all the way from page one to the end. This idea of living water comes. It's moving water. It's fresh water as opposed to stagnant water. This water cleanses and this water gives life. Something that you can drink to keep you alive. And this is what comes from the wound of the rock. Moses strikes the rock. And as soon as I hear God tell Moses, hey, take that rock and go before the people, I expect him and give those people what they need. 
That's not what God tells Moses to do. Instead of inflicting the wrath of that rod onto God's people, God says, I've provided a substitute. I have provided the rock. I want you to hit the rock and living water will flow from the wound of that rock. But there's more here that I want you to see. Look carefully with me at verse 6. Where is God through all of this? Where is God through all of this? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. God is not distant from his people, even in the midst of this, but he is there on the rock as it's being struck, intimately connecting himself with the people and taking the blow himself. This is not just a story about God's people getting something to drink when they're thirsty. This is a picture of God taking the consequence of sin, the punishment of sin on himself. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He tells us in no uncertain terms, the rock was Christ. That Jesus stood in the gap as our substitute and received the wrath of God that, should have, that was being poured out on our sins so that we did not have to receive it. That we did not have to receive it. He provides a substitute. Sally Lloyd-Jones has uh, written what's probably the best um, children's Bible that I've found. Um, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And she actually has a follow-up to it called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And I was actually just reading it with my kids the other night. And she tells a story um, from World War II. And, and in, the, in, in the devotional, she has the text, and then she also has one image. And if you look at the image, it's five shovels in a row and a railroad and a hole in the ground. And the story goes like this, that in, in World War II, there are some prisoners of war who were commanded to dig um, in order to build a railroad. And the guard is standing there, and he counts four shovels, and he loses it on the prisoners and says, if someone doesn't tell me who stole a shovel, I'm going to kill all of you. Why? He was scared of them using it as a weapon or escaping. And so one man steps forward and says, I took the shovel, and he is executed on the spot. The next day, when the work began again, the same guard came back and found five shovels. He had simply miscounted the day before. So one innocent man had stood up on behalf of his friends and received an unjust punishment and died for them. This is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Today, if you don't know Jesus, if you're wondering about this Christian faith, I need you to know that this is the kind of God you serve who loves you and stays with you by way of his rock. He has taken it all on your behalf. The death that you deserve to die is put on Jesus. You are free. You are provided for. But it isn't amazing that the rock did not just receive the blow. It didn't just receive the consequence, but it actually gave life. Brothers and sisters, you know that salvation in Jesus does not just free you from the penalty of sin, it frees you from its power. You are set free from sin because when our rock, our redeemer came to this earth, he came and died that death, he was struck on our behalf and he rose again and what did he tell his disciples? I am leaving, but I am sending you a helper. And in John chapter 7, which we'll talk two sermons from now, he stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us what he's talking about. And he said this about the Spirit who is yet to come. The Spirit is our living water. Jesus took the penalty for our sin. The Holy Spirit frees us from his power as he works in our heart, as he cleanses us. 
You are no longer a slave to sin. You are set free and provided for a clean, living stream of water to drink from. This is what your Savior has done for you. And so, Redeemer, God is with you. So wait for Him. Wait for Him when it aches. Wait for Him when it hurts. Wait for Him if you wonder if God is ever going to give you that good thing. He's with you. He's with you. Israel had to wait 1,500 years for their rock and their redeemer and their mediator to be there. But he came, the true and better rock, the true and better mediator. And the Spirit, if he is in you today, flows like a river of living water, cleansing you and reviving you, giving you life away from your rebellion, away from your sin. And the image we have in Scripture in Ezekiel and in Revelation is that this living water will flow one day throughout the whole world, turning a desert into a garden again. That one day we will see Eden. The Holy Spirit is here. And this sad reminder of Masa and Meribah, where we quarrel against God, where we test Him in our rebellion, He stays with us. So wait on Him. So brothers and sisters, the question for you today, the question for me today that I ask, I'm asking right now, is, is God with you or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And the answer is a resounding yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this good word to us. It breaks us to think of our sin like this as our rebellion, but we thank you that you are with God's people. You are with Israel. Give us the hope and the strength and the Holy Spirit it takes to wait on you when it's hard. We love you. Thank you for your word. Be with these people as they go out into the world with their aches and their pains and their hurts. We love you, and it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.